0: Israel has barely had time to catch her collective breath. Deliverance through the water, a song about water, led to a journey without water. Thomas Akempis wrote these words, as long as we live in this world, We cannot be without tribulation and temptation. When one temptation or tribulation is over, another comes in. And we shall have always something to suffer because we have lost the good of our original happiness." And all Israel and all of the people of God say amen. Yes, we know that is in fact the case. We know it from our own experience. We know it from the Word of God. We've seen it before. We've seen it in the book of Genesis. Recall the great journey of Abraham to get to this land that God has promised, and he gets to the land, and the very verse, next verse is what? And there was a famine in the land. Same thing for Isaac, and think of all of the difficulties that Jacob went through. We know what it's like, because Genesis has taught us to go from the frying pan right into the fire, one thing after another. You leave Laban, you think you're okay, and Esau's right in front of you. The people of God face one thing after another, after another, and that is exactly what is happening to Israel in this section before us. They had the grumbling and fear that existed when they were on the other side of the Red Sea, and they had the Red Sea behind them, the wilderness around them, and the Egyptians bearing down on them. And then they have this mighty deliverance, the celebration that we read about earlier in chapter 15, and then boom, 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 boom. Written for us, recorded for us, intentionally in exactly this way, like fireworks on the 4th of July, they are confronted by one crisis situation after another. And it's designed, it's written exactly so that we get the sense of what they are going through. A story that comes along or stories that come along of want, of need, of failure, and of God's provision. Israel, and I'm indebted to one of the commentaries, though this is actually a biblical thought, not a commentator's thought, Israel's being taken to school. We're told in Galatians that the law is the tutor to lead us to Christ. Well, Israel is being taken to school, and if when we get to Sinai, Sinai will become, for the people of God, the great teaching block, the great download of information this is what you are to do, this is how you are to serve me, this is how you are to love one another, then perhaps what we can say by way of working out the analogy is that Israel is now in preschool. Israel is now in kindergarten. And you remember the name of that book? Everything I Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten? Well, that's, that's kind of what's going on here. This is the the superstructure that God is giving to them for how they are to walk. God, we read, is is testing them. Uh, But it's probably better to read that to say God is training them. God is equipping them. God is forging them in the fiery furnace of thirst so that they will grow in their faith. And so, in these passages, the one before us, the two before us today, and in the ones that will be over the next few weeks, we see God teaching us first principles, first things, the main things, the superstructure of a life of faith as we walk with God. So, lesson one, in this world you'll get thirsty. In this world, we are going to get thirsty, and thirst is powerful. We all know from personal experience what it is like to be thirsty. You all know what it's like to be on a sports team, to have workouts, and to get thirsty, or to be at work, be parched, and get thirsty, or whatever it is. You know what it's like to be thirsty. That's a common experience for all of us, and it's a powerful experience common experience for all of us, but I suspect that few of us have been in the wilderness for three days and been nearly dying of thirst and have it be not only us, which would be bad enough if we were like the cowboy alone in the wilderness dying of thirst, but to have our children with us and to see our children dying of thirst or to see our parents dying of thirst, or our grandparents, or our livestock. Then we get a sense of how weighty this is. It's not just that I'd like a drink. It is is that we've got to find water or thousands upon ten thousands upon hundreds of thousands of people, livestock, children are about to die. Thirst demands our attention. When you get thirsty, it is going to make you single-minded, especially in a situation like this. There is one thing on the mind, how do we find water? And oh, the disappointment of getting to water and then finding that it is undrinkable, unpotable water. Water because of its bitterness. Remember the, uh, I, I don't know if they're still doing it or not, remember Sprite had the slogan, obey your thirst? Obey your thirst. Thirst demands obedience. It says, don't ignore me. Satisfy me. Quench it. Take care of this before you take care of anything else. Find something to drink. I trust that we all understand that when we're talking about thirst here, we've got an object lesson that is set in front of us by God. It is real. It's not pretend. They are physically, actually thirsty. But there is a broader lesson, clearly, that they were supposed to get, that we are supposed to get as we read of this story. And the broader lesson is this, stated as simply as we can, that we humans are not self-sufficient. We are not independent. We are, in fact, dependent. And the removal or the absence of something as simple, as basic as water, makes us immediately realize just how dependent we are. So think of this, I mean, small scale, okay? This is very small scale. But a water main breaks, or for whatever reason, the water in your house has to get shut down. Think of how quickly things change in your life. Immediately, everything in your house will change because one thing has stopped. Now that goes on for one day, two days, three days, a little bit longer, and you need to move. You need to find someplace else. Electricity goes out, everything changes, right? One thing removed, one simple, basic thing, and we realize how dependent we are. We need provisions and without them we will die. God is saying this You need water for your body. In this world you will get thirsty. Jesus says effectively the same thing to the woman at the well. Water's good, right? You're here for water. I'm here for water. Would you give me some water? but there's another thirst that you have. The other thirst that you have that this water will not satisfy is you have a thirsty soul. And you have to deal with the thirst in your soul and the question that is begged here in Exodus, as well as John, is how are you going to quench that thirst? How are you going to take care of the thirst that is in your soul? Lesson two. Consider yourself. Let this passage for us inform our identity. Consider yourself and change your instinctive response, your natural response, to a situation like this. Consider yourself. These passages come one after another. There's no mistake that they come one after another. This one, the manna passage. Uh, I'm sorry, Exodus fifteen, the manna passage, and then Exodus seventeen, the water from the rock, and the battle with the Amalekites that follows right on it. Run one right after the other. And in each one of them, particularly in these first three, God has put them one after another so that both the Israelites in reflecting back over these things and their children reflecting back over these things and we in reflecting back over them can see these passages and the reactions that are contained therein, the reactions of the people in these situations as a mirror, as a mirror that reflects for us the natural state of our soul, the natural disposition of our hearts. May God protect us from looking at a passage like this with disdain for the Israelites. And just shaking our head and going, those, those foolish Israelites, how could they do it? How could anyone who have witnessed the plagues, the deliverance through the Red Sea, how could they possibly Do this. May God protect us from that. For it is a mirror not only of them, but of our hearts as well. It is a mirror of what we do. We cannot distance ourselves from them as if we would have done better in their place. You're not supposed to read it and go, those foolish Israelites. You're supposed to read it and go, oh, foolish me. Now, actually, You can go, those foolish Israelites, because they were foolish, as long as you include yourself in it. Foolish humanity. Why do we do this over and over again? The mirror reveals to us the reality that when we are confronted by these trials, tribulations, and difficulties that come in life, by these unfulfilled desires, perceived needs that we have. Our instinctual, natural first reaction is to grumble and to blame. And we do it in all sorts of ways. We grumble with our words, we grumble with our eyes, we grumble with our posture we grumble when we complain to other people. Some of us grumble loudly so that we can hear it. Others murmur. They prefer to share it with someone in a different way. We challenge, we refuse, we grouch, we grumble. Here, uh, here again, verse 24 from chapter 15. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? This this is known as the grumbling section of Scripture. These passages right before us today, the manna passage, and then the corresponding but later passages that come in the book of Numbers from 17 verses 2 and 3, just to hear the words, therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? We are, as humanity, a grumbly lot. James picks up on this. James 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. James has to be. I don't know what was in his mind, but he has to be reflecting on this as he writes those words. The mirror reveals that about me. It tells that about me. It says, Eric, that's the truth about you. The people demand for Moses, I demand that which only God can provide. The lesson is personal, it's for each of us individually, and it's for all of us. Corporate and personal self-awareness. In my natural heart, I am selfish and covetous. In my natural heart, I want what you have. And I want it to be mine. And I don't want you to have it whatever it is, material happiness, whatever it is. I want that. That's the natural man. That's the natural woman, at least the fallen natural man and woman. I desire water. Water is my right. One one commentator puts it this way. What I would really like when push comes to shove is for God to be at my beck and call, for God, in fact, to be my personal water boy. You ever played on a sports team? You had a water boy, water girl. They don't do anything. They just bring you water when you're thirsty. Here it is. God, we're walking through life. We're trying to serve you. Can we just have some water along the way? The higher up you get, in sports echelons, the less thanks goes to the water boy. They don't, you, don't even, you don't even get notice. Just grab your hand. Water is stuck in your hand. God, would you be my personal water boy? They put God to the test. You see the reversal? God is testing them. God is forging them. God is training them and they want to turn that the other way and say, well, in fact, we'd like to train God. We'd like to to make sure that God's really going to do what we would like Him to do. They turn it around. If I can understand that, if I can embrace that this is the reality of me, without God, without His grace, without His mercy. If I can accept that that's my identity and not some other identity, then there's good news to be found. There's, in fact, great news to be found if I can accept that that actually is the state of my heart. But I have to be aware of that to recognize that that is really and truly who I am. Moses redirects this situation. He changes the instinctive response. He could have counter To be sure, he is feeling hard-pressed, he's feeling threatened in his position before the people, as any of us would were we in the same position, but he turns to God and he cries out to the one who actually can provide. Grumbling must turn to prayer. Maybe of all the lessons we could take away, that's the simplest way to put it. Grumbling has to turn to prayer. They grumbled, Moses prays. Now, Moses has done his own grumbling in the past. We read about that earlier in Exodus, right? It just happened to be that he was in dialogue with God at the time. He was praying at the time. There was nobody between Moses and God. The people grumble. Moses prays, grumbling is so insidious, it seems so innocuous, so benign, so common all around us, so easy. I ask you this question, who is most characterized by grumbling? Is it children? Children are notoriously characterized by grumbling, by dissatisfaction with whatever it is, some right at this very moment? Or is it adults who are notoriously dissatisfied with salaries, with bosses, with this house where things always break down, with the weather, with a spouse, with the children? Or is it older people? who by proverb grumble and grouch. See, grumble is an equal opportunity sin. It it doesn't choose an age. Some sins are more reflective of one age in life than another. Some of them subside as you get older. Whether it's by reason of sanctification or physical tiredness, we won't debate. But, But some are characterized by certain periods in life, except grumbling or there's probably others, but in any case, grumbling is one that for every age of our life is appropriate. It is the great offense of being discontent, but the pain and the thirst have to turn to prayer. Lesson three, listen and follow the instructions that God then gives. In response to Moses' cries in each one of these situations, God provides a set of instructions for Moses to follow, a means by which there will be a resolution to the particular situation, the particular problem in that particular place which they are facing. And so, take a log and throw it into the water. Take the elders take your staff, go, go up to this particular rock and strike that rock. These are proto-lessons, proto-lessons, first lessons for the people of God, for the Israelites and for us in every generation. These are the basic principles. It's the basic structure of the Mosaic Covenant, of that which will be revealed to us as soon as we get to Sinai. God saying, Listen to what I say, do what I have told you to do, and you will live. L- listen to chapter 15 for a moment, the second half of 25 and then into 26. Let me read it for you so then I'm going to make a comment on it. The Lord made for them a statute and a rule. There He tested them, saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which right in his, is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will, and then it goes on from there, be the Lord your healer and not put the diseases on you. But you hear the language that is used in that passage, four commands given specifically. If you will listen, do, give ear, and keep statutes, commandments, testimonies, rules, And what's interesting is that is language that is really Sinai language. The law hasn't been given yet. The statutes, the rules, the testimonies haven't formally been given yet to the people of God. And yet here we have this proto-language, this proto-image of what you're going to need to do, how you're going to need to live in the presence of God if you want to live well. If you want to experience blessing. It's very similar. Language like this, and don't turn there right now, I'll just read it for you, is used also in Genesis chapter 26. God, reflecting back on Abraham, says this, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. That's Sinai language. That's language post Ten Commandments, and yet put in thousands of years, or in this case a few days, in Exodus chapter 15, prior to the actual giving of the law. God's saying, it's out there. It's communicated to you. Through your traditions, through the word, through the revelation which I have already given to you, through what is in your heart, you know what it means to follow me. Do it. Follow me. Obey the things that I am telling you. It's not formally codified until a few chapters later. But God is giving to the people this basic lesson. Listen. Obey. It'll go well with you. Lesson four. And you can trust me. Trust me. I'm the one who took you through. I'm the one who brought you out. You can trust me. I'll do it. I'll do exactly what I'm telling you that I will do. I will provide for you. I've already done it. You can trust that I'll do it again. You can trust that I will provide your daily bread, your daily water, that which you need along the way. I will give you water for life, physical water, spiritual water. I will give it to you. You can trust me. I'm with you. I'm Yahweh. I've been telling you that all along. In fact, I'm your Yahweh. And so he does. He provides for them. Did you notice as we looked at these passages today that there is nary a rebuke from God in it? These are pretty strenuous complaints from the people. And yet God is very patient very tender, very kind, very, relatively gentle with them. Why? Because they're in preschool. <laughs> they're kindergartens. And you're gentle. you're tender, and you're kind. Now when these things will come up again, later in the book of Exodus, in the book of numbers, woo. It's going to get pretty hot. It's going to get pretty difficult. But for now, God is very tender towards the people, even in the face of these complaints. And the result is, of course, that bitter water turns sweet, that God becomes known as their healer, that after that one place where they were in 15, I don't know if you caught this, the last verse of 15, then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. That's a nice place. That's kind of a that's kind of a threefold reference, a reference back to Eden, a really nice garden that God had provided. Forward to Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey, and forward, forward to the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem that is being a little oasis along the way where they were. But they had this question, 17 verse 7, what Moses named it, because there they tested the God, they quarreled with the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? And the answer is, yes. Yes, indeed He is. Indeed I am. Indeed I'm here, right in the midst of you, right at this particular time of need. And the rest of the Old Testament, and we don't have time to look at it because this is such a ubiquitous theme throughout Scripture, the rest of the Old Testament anticipates streams of living water flowing, coming to the people of God in the wilderness. And so Jesus comes. Jesus comes, having, like the people of Israel, like Moses, been baptized. And the first miracle that he does, at least the first miracle that John records that he does, is he takes water that would have been suitable only for washing. I don't know what it would have tasted like, whether bitter or not, just bad. And he turns it into wine. And he says, I'm giving you something wonderful, something joyous to drink, to provide for you. And he tells the woman at the well, I have living water, a water that you don't know about. And he promises throughout the Gospels to pour out his Spirit, to pour it out, to lavish out the Spirit of God, not to dole it out, not to portion it out, not to partition it as if there's just a little bit of the Spirit to go around but to pour out as much of the Spirit of God on His people as they can take and more. And so he says, if you are thirsty, you come to me and you drink. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, and I know this is a, <laughs> this is a flood of passages that relate to water, pun intended, but Paul says when reflecting on this, we read it two weeks ago, 1 Corinthians 10, Christ, Jesus, is the rock. Jesus is the rock. He's the one that was struck through whom the water was provided, sacramentally speaking. Union between Christ and how he is represented for us then sacramentally in the Old Testament. And here's a spoiler. Here's how your Bible ends. With a river of water, of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, and a call to come and drink. It's actually where your Bible started, too. Water and then land and rivers running through this garden that God had provided. God says to us, listen, if you are thirsty, come. Come. There is sweet water available for you. There is a thirst in your soul and nothing will quench it. Gatorade will not quench it. Craft, specialty, beers will not quench it. A wonderful Bordeaux will not quench it. Single malt scotch will not quench it. Coffee will not quench it. You can drink all of that stuff you want. You can try to satisfy the thirst in your soul with all sorts of things. with sports or with your job or with your wealth wealth, or with your spouse, with having children. But if you are trying to make those things, the living water, which will ultimately satisfy you, which will ultimately refresh you, they will be for you bitter. That is all they will be. They will be bitter water. There is one way for the soul to be quenched. And it is through Jesus Christ, who is the living water of God, the one who is able to provide for us that which we need, healing, forgiveness of sins. Whether you are a Christian or not, if you are a Christian, you can get distracted and forget and think that there are other ways to satisfy your thirst. There are not. You always come back to the same way, to the same one, to the same one to give you a drink. And if you are not a Christian, spelling it out as simply as possible, what we are saying is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not trust the things in this world to provide for you satisfaction of the thirst of your soul. Believe in Jesus Christ and you will live. If you are grumbling, admit it. Own it. Repent of your self-centeredness. Repent of your short-sightedness. Repent of the way that you look with your eyes to judge a situation. You think of your throat and decide what you need. You think of your belly and you decide what you need. Repent of it. Do not let circumstances of the present cloud reality. that's an inversion. Typically, we think, don't distract me with other things. I've got this present circumstance facing me right in front of me, and that's reality. What God says is, no, 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 no. That's a cloudy view of reality. There's a greater need that you have, a greater reality, a greater satisfaction that can be provided. Do not let the circumstances, and that's what Israel is facing, Determine how you view reality. Check your view of God. Check it. Stop grumbling and start praying. Not selfish selfish praying for God to be your water boy and give you a drink. It is possible to pray that way. James says this, continuing on from the passage I read earlier, where you fight and quarrel because you do not have. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on yourselves. There's a way to pray incorrectly. It's when selfishness is the motive. There's a way to pray correctly. There's a way to express the deep soul hurts, pains, needs, thirst before God, humbly, petitioning Him with faith and with the desire with the desire to be, listen, not only refreshed, but a refresher. That's, that's what James is saying is the difference. You want, you pray, you ask because you want to spend it on yourselves. Well, what's the opposite of that? If that's wrong, what's right? Be refreshed and spend it on others refresh others. The very first sermon series that I preached in this church was on the book of Philemon, and I did it because of one word. Philemon, I have often been refreshed by you when I heard of the way that you loved the saints. Now, Philemon, refresh my soul. Set Onesimus free and send him back to me refreshment refreshment given and received but given and received by the spirit of god to such an extent that i do not need to hoard i don't need to save it up there's no need to save it up we'll get to that later i'm sorry that's a that's a man up sneaking into our our thirsty analogy right now i don't need to save it because it's poured out so it overflows out of us into others that's the way to pray properly If you've had a good long drink of Jesus Christ and you came today and you're feeling satisfied, that's great, that's wonderful. I'll give you three quick things. Number one, be thankful. Number two, beware. Take heed. Take heed. That's the whole 1 Corinthians 10 thing. Lest a man think he, a man think he stands, lest he fall. So if you're satisfied in Christ, great. But take heed. Can I do the... Can I do the uh, the Star Wars line. Don't get cocky, kid. Lest you fall. And finally, be generous. Give the cup of the water of life to others. There's refreshment. There's refreshment. Jesus is the water of life, refreshment, and a dry, thirsty lamb. Let's pray together.